Hello and welcome uh, to the third episode of The Art of Drug Choice. This is treating new wet AMD patients. And in this episode, we'll be discussing how to treat a new patient and forecasting how their treatment decision tree may change in the near future. So, so we have uh, our esteemed faculty, Dr. Leila Weisovich, as well as Dr. Joe Kuni for this episode again. So Leila, I'm gonna start with you. You know, we, we talk a lot about uh, you know, new treatment options, brovocizumab, approval of port delivery system, as well as upcoming approval of possibly frisimab. But let's go back a little bit. Um, uh, treating new wet AMD patients, um, what was the paradigm before Aflibrostep was approved in November of 2011 and how that paradigm has changed over the last decade? And, and then we can talk about how is going to change with the new treatments? And that's a great question to kind of contrast that. And, you know, thinking about it, um, you know, paradigm is about the same, except we have more drug choices. Um, we, um, you know, I would still start, start with um, bevacizumab. Um, and I think that's just an easy start that's efficacious. And um, for somebody who's just stepping in the clinic with no new, you know, no known diagnosis, I find it challenging to get approvals um, for, you know, branded drugs. And being that I practice in university setting, I actually also do not have access to samples. So I will definitely start with Bevacizumab and give them a kind of three injections uh, a month apart to get a loading dose in and see how they respond. And based on that response, I may um, very likely continue that route or switch into a branded drug at that point. Um, so that that paradigm has not really changed for me that much. But I'm excited to have longer treatment options and potentially change with that. Where now, you know, after just you know having those three loading, after being certain that this patient is responding to anti-VEGF, I very much you know would be offering them something that's going to be longer, be it PDS, be it you know um, other options. I think those are really really good points, uh, Lel. I think. What we have learned over the past decade is obviously each patient is different and there are patients who need more treatment and there are patients who need less treatment. And obviously there are patients who have active disease that uh, we need newer or more durable agents for. And that's where bolacizumab fit in, obviously because of the rare events and irreversible vision loss in some patients, it is uh, the last option. So Leila, you are in a university setting, uh, difficult access to samples, difficult to get uh, branded agents. For me as a private practice uh, physician, I actually have had the luck of starting most of my patients on branded drugs. Lately, there has been a lot of step therapy that we have to go through, but overall, uh, you know, I will initiate uh, with a sample if we don't have a benefit investigation done. Sometime I can start right away with a branded agent, whether it's uh, ranibizumab or a flibrostep. And then, you know, obviously, treat them monthly, and then after three doses or so, try to extend and, and then see how the disease activity looks like. Uh, Lela, is that what you are doing too? Are you still loading and are you still doing treat and extend? Exactly, same paradigm. I, I'm treating for three doses um, and then after that, um, extending. So really treat, treat extend approach um, very much so. Um, and I like to, you know, after after doing a full assessment, I tend to just bring them in for injection visits with OCTs. OCT helps me, you know, understand what the disease activities is and whether they are responding to the therapy. 
Um, and then I tend to reassess them every third, actually fourth injection. So, so you, you don't do exams every time. So how does that change when you have a patient with persistent disease with monthly injection and using brolicizumab? You are doing an exam every time on brolicizumab patients, right? That is correct. Um, that is a great point, you know, because of the concern of inflammation um, and with brolicizumab, and that's more likely than other drugs, um, those uh, patients actually examine on a monthly basis. Um, I, I do not use it as often um, for that reason, because that concern, not for the exam, but just concern of inflammation itself. Um, but, um, but yes, those patients definitely need to be examined. I think those are great points. And Joe, I know uh, just like uh, Leila, you use brolicizumab as your last option in patients who have active disease. Do you manage them any differently than what Leila said? Arshad, I, I actually do manage them a little bit different. I think it because I do have patients on other medications that may come in for a direct injection. So I don't do direct injections on my brolicizumab patients. Um, I will look at them. I will try to pick up early signs and symptoms of inflammation. And if, I, if I'm concerned about something, I will get a wide a field for an angiogram, a joint, just trying to pick up something early. Um, what I don't do is bring them in monthly. I don't do a loading dose on these individuals. If these individuals uh, could not extend beyond six weeks, that's where my treatment starts and that I'm trying to extend from that point on. Um, so I rapidly try to extend the patients as long as, the, uh, as long as they have complete resolution of fluid and try to figure out where that point um, of a fluid actually returns, but I do see them in between. Uh, we also call these patients early on, a couple of weeks later, just to make sure that they're doing okay. And it's a courtesy call. I don't think it adds much to the patient's management because individuals can still develop inflammation up to a month uh, following the injection. It's a little bit different uh, from an endophthalmitis, which we normally see in the first week uh, following uh, uh, the injection. I think the most important thing is to discuss with the patients um, about the signs and symptoms. They all, they all leave my office with a sheet of paper saying if you have pain, redness, floaters, decrease in vision, or light sensitivity to call. And the one great thing about these patients is that these are treatment experience uh, uh, individuals. So if they have any problems, uh, they should know because they know what it feels like to have it, um, or what they should be feeling uh, from previous injections. Great. No, I agree. And I think, you know, our that's why this episode, you know, the series is called Art of Drug Choice because we have to use, uh, you know, the data, we have to use our experience, and then we have to use available treatment options um, uh, for our patients. Um, so, so in terms of PDS, uh, Joe, um, how do you plan to use PDS? Obviously, you know, we covered some of that in earlier episodes, but where in your decision tree uh, will uh, PDS fit in now that it's FDA approved? So PDS, I will uh, definitely consider those individuals that are high flyers, those that are requiring four, six, even eight week um, um, injections. I think the most important thing is, would be patient uh, selection. Uh, these will typically be one of uh, some of my more healthier patients without um, that, had to, that does not have a significant amount of medical problems considering that this does require going uh, to surgery and those individuals that have required a long-term suppression of anti-VEGF. Uh, anti um, you know, I think that the most important thing is to try who you who may not be the, great, the greatest candidate for this device. Um, I think I wanna stay away from individuals that have maybe ocular surface disease, if they have rosacea or blepharitis or history of, uh, of uh, scleritis, or even a history of prior globe surgery. 
uh, such as um, a, a filtering glaucoma procedures or even a sclerobuckle. Uh, for my older patients, obviously, I'm always concerned. Um, so I do not want to take 90-year-old grandmas to surgery for this. So for her, I probably would think about a longer-acting uh, intravitreal injection. You know, there was a three-fold increase in, in, in ophthalmitis in the, in the trials that basically is a 2% uh, infection rate, and that's compared to um, uh, other injections. And so you have to be aware of that. I think it's more, uh, most of those patients developed infections because of the retraction of the conjunctiva. I think it becomes critical not just to monitor for disease activity, but you also have to monitor for the device uh, activity to make sure that there's no problem. So if you do see a problem, uh, you can rectify that uh, early so you don't have to take that person, um, when it, you don't expose them to endophthalmitis and take the person back to surgery earlier to uh, just uh, uh, fix the tissue over, um, uh, uh, over the blip. But I do think that all these things are interesting. Um, I think that we are addressing the burden in this country. When you look at the ASRS PAT survey, that's always one of the top things that we want to address um, or, or that the need of the retina specialists have been is really addressing the needs and cut down the treatment burden. So we finally have a FDA approved a device. I'm very excited about it. Um, so for some patients, I think this will be a great procedure. No, I agree. I think uh, for patients who have a significant need on, on, uh, in terms of getting injections very frequently, and obviously patients who want to stress their treatment interval, uh, PDS is a great option. So Lela, for you, you have PDS and hopefully Fresimab available here very soon. If a patient can go Q16 week uh, with Fresimab or you know, 80% in tonight lucernament actually 12 or 16. So eight out of 10 are now at three or four month interval. How do you decide when to use PDS? Yeah, no, I think um, that having three to four month interval injection, that is going to be amazing and ideal because, um, you know, we're going to want to examine these patients regardless um, to make sure that they're controlled. And I foresee, you know, in-office procedure gaining more traction with longer therapy versus a surgical approach. But I think PDS will definitely have a role uh, in patients who are not, you know, um, wanting to come in that often or potentially are just not responding to therapies as well. Um, I, um, I think that as we continue to advance technology in terms of home screening, such as home OCT, I think we'll also see more of a switch to surgical delivery, delivery or drugs such as PDS because now we can combine monitoring with that. And I think that that will be a, a, another shift. I think that's a really, really good uh, point that if you really wanna not only just decrease injection burden, but you also wanna decrease visit burden. So can we just see patients every six months and they can be monitored and if they need a supplemental treatment, before six months, we can catch him and then bring it. I think that's a really, really good, um, uh, good point. So, Joe, question for you: What is your um, threshold for switching patients um, from one agent to another? Do you go three months? Do you go six months? What are you looking at in terms of a treatment response with any agent that you're using um, uh, to see? how the patient is responding and, and why would you choose, let's say uh, a flibercep or anubizumab or brolocizumab or even frisimab? What, what are you gonna do when you have all these treatment options that are available? How are you gonna start your patients and what are you gonna switch to? You know, Rashad, that's, that's a great question. 
And I think we will have some issues trying to carry all these biologics in our in our office. So I think we have to figure out which ones we're going to use. Uh, with that being said, um, I think that my initial treatment regimen will, will probably say the same. Um, and that may be decided on insurance, unfortunately. Uh, we do have step edits here in Ohio, so I'm forced to use a certain agent. Um, but after the, the, the first three or four injections, I'm always thinking of any ways to switch into a different agent. So that may be another on-label uh, therapy. It may be another monotherapy. Um, and then after another three to four injections of that particular agent, if a patient is not responding, I'll be planting the seeds early on about switching to a third agent probably after that, between that six and 12 month interval. Um, and I wouldn't have a problem even switching, um, let, let's say fericimab earlier in that tree. Uh, fericimab showed a great durability in the trials where uh, more than half these individuals, well, nearly half these individuals went almost uh, 16 weeks. So that may uh, become an earlier doctor uh, for me. I can also see for uh, ranibizumab, at least in our office, going away. Um, if it was not inferior to a flibercept, so we're, we're assuming that it has the same uh, efficacy of ranibizumab. So why would I need fericimab and ranibizumab in my clinics, particularly if we have one dose that is the same for both our diabetics and our AMD patients, that would just cut down one drug in our office, uh, particularly from an inventory standpoint. Um, and particularly if fericimab comes out with a, with a silicone-free syringe, um, I think it makes it easier for the practice. Great. And, and in terms of uh, patients um, switching, Lela, how do you communicate to your patients when you're switching uh, an agent? Or how are you going to talk to a patient when you're going to go from in-clinic treatment to a surgical treatment? Yeah. No, I, I approach all my patients kind of in a sort of a, you know, even from the get-go approach that this treatment is sort of an algorithm. You know, we... We will start with this uh, therapy, and if it, if you're not um, if not you're responding, we're going to switch. And in that algorithm, I'm very much going to offer surgical approach as well, and you know get them kind of used to that idea to know that surgery is an option that is going to be longer um, treatment, um, um, sort of decreasing the number of visits and treatment burden um, related to that. And then I think with time, they they really understand that and they actually may even choose that as an option. It's it's very similar to like any other, I feel like um, retinal disease where surgery is the treatment of choice. They may not kind of be interested in the first visit, but I think over time, as the treatment burden kind of sets in, I think they'll, they'll be more comfortable with that idea. So I think presenting it early on with the idea of that that's an option. And if it really is needed option down the road, I think they'll, they'll be more comfortable with that. I think that's a really good advice. And that's what I do. Um, I, uh, you know, offer the different options to patients. And I say, we have a surgical option that we will explore after three to six months based on, based on your uh, response. So thank you again, uh, Lela and Joe for your expert insights and great discussions. Now we're going to go on a short break and then we'll be back with the case in a minute. Thanks again. Well, welcome back from the break. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Kanani as he presents his case. This is a 83-year-old uh, male diagnosed with neovascular AMD, November of 2010. Uh, 
And so he has been a longstanding patient of mine for over a decade. Initially, patient got treated with uh, eight bevacizumab injections and, and he still had disease activity and couldn't be extended. So he was switched to uh, 36 ranibizumab injections um, and he received uh, nine injections in 2019. And he was receiving injections every four to five weeks. And over time, uh, you know, he had persistent fluids. So he was switched to a flibrostep and he received 19 aflibrostep injections, but they were discontinued because he developed severe um, IOI uh, from aflibrostep, which was managed and he was back to baseline. Uh, the patient is an infectious disease retired physician and he didn't wanna go back to aflibrostep after the inflammatory episode. So then we switched back to ranibizumab and, and really he would require every four to six weeks and the disease was not controlled. He was not interested in getting injections more frequent than every four weeks. And, and he was waiting for something uh, more durable uh, to come along. And, and when brolicizumab got approved, uh, a patient was really excited to receive the drug. And of course, at that time, we were not aware of uh, the risk of uh, uh, retinal vasculitis, retinal artery occlusions. Of course, we knew about the risk, high rates of intraocular inflammation, so after risk, discussing risk and benefit, patient really wanted to start on bovacizumab and he likes to travel too. So he didn't want to come in every four to six weeks. He wanted disease control and more dura durability. So patient received uh, the first bovacizumab. You can see the OCT here, four weeks after bovacizumab, uh, the disease activity is well controlled. Uh, he was not injected at this visit because he's looked at the OCT. You know, in 10 years, he has become an expert on reading OCTs and he said, well, let's watch and see. So he came back four weeks later. Now it's eight weeks post bolicizumab. You can see there's still no disease activity and didn't get an injection at this visit. And at that time, he didn't know that, you know, more frequent injection with bolicizumab can lead to higher rates of intraocular inflammation like what we have seen recently in the, Mer in the Merlin study. So here we just kept observing bi-weekly after every after the eight week visit. And then we saw some disease activity at 12 weeks. So we figured that his interval is about uh, 10 weeks on brolocizumab and he received second brolocizumab came nine weeks later. Um, and then we, we, we kept, uh, you know, treating him with brolocizumab. And, and after the fourth brolocizumab here, you can see the OCT, we, he received the fifth brolocizumab. And then three days post, he called me and said, I am having the same issue I had with the flibrostep. I can't see, the vision is cloudy. So I saw him and he had three plus cells in interior chamber. There was no fibrin in the interior chamber. Um, and, and of course the vitreous was cloudy and we couldn't see the back and you can see the color photo. So I offered him obviously tap and inject because there's a concern for endophthalmitis. He did not have any pain in the eye and he's, he being an infectious disease for the doctor, he said, I don't think it's an infection. I'm having the same thing I had uh, with, uh, with the Flibrocept. This is sterile. So he actually did not um, wanna be uh, you know, injected with antibiotics. So we started on topical and PO steroids, and then we continued to follow him daily. And he was not getting worse, but he was not getting better. But then his, because of all the debris and stuff, his vision started to drop. And of course I convinced him that we need to intervene, we need to put antibiotics, we need to do a vitrectomy now because the vision has dropped to hand motion. 
So, so he underwent partial plantar vitrectomy with intravitreal antibiotics. During the surgery, I noticed retinal hemorrhages, but there were no obvious findings of retinal vasculitis. We sent the culture. There was no, um, no um, you know, growth on the culture. And then, of course, we started with topical drops and PO drops after uh, PO steroids after uh, the surgery. And here you can see one day post. Uh, yeah, it's cloudy, but you can see the retina. He still has no fluid, and the visual acuity was improving to 2400. We got Optos images, obviously, uh, to make sure that there's no vasculitis so that we can uh, be more aggressive if there was vasculitis. I didn't notice any vasculitis. Then, obviously, he came back at one week, looked good. We did another uh, FA at two weeks post, and now the vision is improving. And you can see again, there was no vasculitis and the retina stayed uh, dry. Eight weeks uh, after vitrectomy, his vision again is improving, no vasculitis. We did not treat him uh, because there was no fluid. And, and so the patient has done well post vitrectomy. So then his course has been that he has back to his baseline and, and, and now he receives ranibizumab, but after the vitrectomy, his need is less. So that's a very interesting case I wanted to share because it shows if we catch inflammation and manage it aggressively, we may be able to avoid irreversible vision loss. Yeah, Arshad, that's that's a really interesting case. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think there are kind of multiple um, learning points from this and starting with, you know, um, this patient clearly um, needed very frequent injections um, monthly and was not responding towards the end um, to those. And then this, the switch to brolicizumab um, clearly was needed. But somebody who has history of, um, you know, inflammation after ILEA, like now looking retrospectively, what, what would you kind of, what would your choice be here? I think that's a really good point. We published uh, that paper in JAMA Ophthalmology a couple of months ago, looking at patients who are prone to inflammation uh, with brolicizumab. And, and one of the top uh, reason on that analysis of database from Iris and Komodo registry was actually history of IOI. So if I knew that, I would have never offered bolosizumab to this patient. I think that's a really good point, Lala. But an amazing outcome. And what do you think made a difference in terms of your treatment algorithm for this patient? Clearly, he didn't want to, uh, you know, proceed with vitreous, you know, intravitreal antibiotics. It sounds like actually at the end it was really inflammation. Like, what what do you feel like really helped this patient? Because outcome, like, really going back to 2050 vision after being hand motion is pretty impressive. I think, uh, I think that's a great question, Lela. I think the key was I was treating him aggressively and keeping an eye on him. And, and I think at one point I had to go for a vitrectomy and I convinced him because there was no other way uh, to get rid of all the inflammatory debris as well as knowing if there's vasculitis from brolocizumab because then you have to be, uh, you know, get intravitreal steroid, you have to be on PO steroids longer uh, some of our colleagues do IV steroids. I don't uh, obviously do that, but I think my goal was aggressive uh, management. And, 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 and I think uh, we are lucky that he was able to not have irreversible vision loss, which we have seen in some cases of brolicizumab associated intraocular inflammation. Yeah, I think your, um, your push for the vitrectomy, I think was uh, a necessary step in my opinion. I think it was a, a wise step as well. I think that's what uh, potentially allowed him to come back to a full recovery. So 
Um, so uh, kudos to that. So Ashad, I'm, I'm happy to know that your that your patient um, has done well um, because obviously these can be very uh, detrimental and devastating um, outcomes sometimes for eyes. Not everyone recovers. You know, I do agree with early vitrectomy, uh, particularly if you can't evaluate the retina, if the if the inflammatory debris is worsening or just not improving, uh, because it gives us a better idea of what's going on. And really, patients really get antsy as well. So um, if I think a person has uh, obviously endophthalmitis, I tend to be more aggressive with uh, vitrectomy early on. I think they do have better outcomes. And I would think I would do the same thing with uh, inflammatory events as well, just to get a better view of the retina. The only thing, the only one thing I would do different if I uh, uh, if I thought it was an IOI and not in ophthalmitis, I may often I may also uh, consider either injecting uh, something like an Ajudex or intravitreal triacins at the time of surgery, uh, just to give that eye a little bit extra uh, uh, suppression from an, um, an inflammatory standpoint. Um, I would probably avoid that agent going forward if it was an IOI, if it's an endophthalmitis, that's a different story. Uh, you may have some time to actually uh, buy. Sometimes the uh, swelling is not as, as recurrent sometimes following uh, these, these uh, uh, inflammatory events, but they will recur at, um, at some point. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out another agent, uh, if, if it was truly an IOI, I would avoid that agent. And I would probably go back to whatever agent they were stable on previously. Uh, what, did you do, what agent did you decide to put the patient um, back on and what a process or what decision process went into uh, you choosing that particular agent? Yeah, so, you know, flibercept caused inflammation, rolocizumab caused inflammation. You know, the patient told me, he said, I, I make antibodies to these drugs, so let me go back to ranubizumab. So we, we are back to ranubizumab, but the disease activity is actually uh, much less after the vitrectomy. And, you know, I'm intrigued by it because, you know, we, we think about not having the vitreous and the PK of the drug changes in the eye, and we actually may need to inject more often, but He's, he's been controlled now, you know, before he was not controlled even with four to six weeks ranubizumab, but now he is, he is controlled. We are back to square one. Obviously, frisimab uh, would be a good option uh, for this patient once it's available, but I can see some nervousness and anxiety from him about drugs, uh, the newer drugs, because he feels like he, he has an immune response to it, but hopefully we'll be able to convince him to get frisimab so he doesn't have to come in as frequently as he is with ranubizumab. And maybe even PDS would be a good one too. I think that's a good idea. I mean, in a vitrectomized eye, we don't have data, but I don't see why it won't work. I think that's actually an excellent uh, option if he is uh, considering uh, surgery. So I will have a discussion with him next time I see him. That's a really good point. Thank you again for listening to uh, this episode. We do have the other two episodes available for you to listen to. And the case I presented is available on itube.net. And the other cases presented by Dr. Joe and Leila Vaisevich are also available. I wanna thank Drs. Leila Vaisevich and Dr. Joe Kony for being here, for having great discussion and really uh, you know, telling us really the art of drug choice. Thank you, Leila, and thank you, Joe. Thank you, Arshad. It was a pleasure to be here. Arshad, thank you for having me. I really had a great time. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.